0: Turn this morning, then please, to our text, which comes from First Thessalonians chapter one, verses 17 to 20. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. Hear with me then, the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. as far as the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, remember that we have said already before that chapter 2 is largely about Paul's defense of himself and of his ministry. And he feels the need to defend himself and his ministry because there are these unbelieving Jews and Greeks who are trying to undermine that ministry by telling the saints that Paul really only cares about himself. Paul only cares about himself. And we see Paul responding to these accusations throughout chapter 2. This is why in verse 8 Paul says that when he and the other disciples came, they came not only to share the Gospel, but to share themselves. It was to show that what these unbelieving Jews and Greeks were saying was untrue. They said the reason Paul came wasn't just to help them, but it was to help them in order that he might get something out of it. So Paul responds in verse 9 saying, brothers and sisters, we labored and we we toiled amongst you night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. They said Paul was deceptive. Which is why we see in verse 3 of this chapter that Paul says our appeal to you springs forth not from error or from impurity or from an attempt to deceive. He's appealing to the saints of what they witnessed and what they seen and what they heard. He's He's appealing to their senses. He's saying, don't listen to what they're saying. You've seen this for yourself. This is why he says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. He keeps saying, for you know, for you know. In verse 5 he says, For we never came with words of flattery, for you know. In verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor. Verse 10, For you are witnesses, and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was towards you. In verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted you. Right? For you know, for you know, for you know. He's appealing to what it is they witnessed. And it continues the same in verses 17 through 20. These unbelievers are saying to the saints, If Paul loves you so much, where is he? If Paul loves you so much, why has he left you? Right? And they're saying, it's only because Paul's about himself. He doesn't care about you. That's why he was happy to just leave you behind. Yet, Paul then in response here in verses 17 through 20, pours his heart out to the saints in verse 17, expressing to them how badly he actually wants to be there with them, but explains to them why it has yet to occur in verse 18. And then he ends by encouraging them once more, motivating them to faithful service in verses 19 and 20. And so here in verse 17, we see that Paul says that he was torn away from you. Torn away. These are the words Paul describes and how he describes how his absence occurred. And if you recall, we're very familiar now with Acts 17 here, right? And if you remember about Acts 17, This is a really an accurate representation of what occurred there, isn't it? Remember, Paul was there with the other disciples and they were going to the synagogues and they were proclaiming and preaching the resurrection of Christ. And what were we told in Acts 17? There were these Jews who were jealous of Paul and they formed a mob and they went looking for Paul. They were causing an uproar in the city. So much so that they went to one of the brothers' house whose name was Jason And they arrested him and they brought him before the authorities. And the same thing they're looking to do to Paul. And so we read that the saints are concerned for the welfare of Paul. And so what do they do? They take Paul and they send him off to Berea. They send him off to Berea in order for his safety. And so we see why Paul describes his absence from them as being torn away from them. Because he didn't want to go. He was forced out. And this word that is translated here for torn away or taken away has an even deeper meaning that fits well with all that Paul has been saying to the saints. Because this word doesn't just mean that he was taken away or torn away. What this really means is that it is to make someone an orphan of. To be made an orphan of. That's what to be torn away or to be taken away means. And doesn't this fit well with how Paul sees himself in relation to these saints? Remember in verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children we were, as we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul sees himself like a parent, and he sees these saints as like his children. And so he was torn away from them. He was taken away from them, and now they have been made an orphan. Right, the saints have been made an orphan as their parent is no longer with them. And how agonizing that must have been for Paul, as well as for these saints. I'm sure, perhaps some of us at some point have have told our children, you know, I got to go to work today, but when when Dad's finished, I'm gonna I'm gonna get home and. As a family, we're all going to go out and celebrate your birthday. right? Or... or I'm going to make sure I get out of work on time and I'm going to, I'm going to make it to that, that big sporting event, right. the big music concert you have. I, I promise I'm going to be there. And yet, what inevitably sometimes ends up happening? Work keeps you late? Traffic's too tight and you just can't make it on time? Or something else comes up and you, you try and you try and you do all that you can to get there, but you fail and you're unable to get there and you feel terrible about it and you sit your child down and you tell him i'm so sorry i really wanted to be there but i was kept away by this or by that but i i want you to know that dad really does love you and i I really tried to get there this is much as like paul is doing here he's saying i'm really trying to get to you i love you I don't want you to think that I'm not interested in you, that I don't love you, that I've forgotten about you. I'm really trying. I want to be there. And so Paul's expressing these very same sentiments like any good parent would to their child. right? But see, the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, that upon reading this and knowing the experience of our own life, the fact of the matter is is that people will let you down in this life. That's a matter of fact. You will be let down. Children, you will be let down by your parents from time to time. You will be let down by your friends a lot of times, I'm sure. You might be let down by your employer. You might be let down by your spouse even. But that's because we're all fallible, sinful, and imperfect beings. We aren't perfect. We we can't always control our situation and our circumstance, no matter how much we try to micromanage situations. And yet when we read this and we see that not even Paul, this father-like figure to the saints, can get to them when he wants to, what consolation does that give you and I? What consolation does that give you and I? Well, the, the comfort that that ought to give fallible, fail, weak people who cannot always do as they want to do is that although... We can't get to where we want to be at all times. That we can't actually do and control all of our circumstances. We serve a God who can. We serve a God who can. Right? Our Father is always there. Never late, Never behind. Always there. And it is because God is sovereign over the whole world. God is eternal and infallible. He decreed All that shall come to pass, and it will come to pass. It is He who created all things, both in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether rulers or authorities or principalities or powers. And so our Father's promises are kept. All that occurs, occurs upon His appointment. And so whatever shall come to pass will come to pass, for God cannot lie. And what a great comfort that ought to be to the Christian's heart. What does the psalmist say about the the might of God? Look to Psalm 33 with me, please. Psalm 33. As we see the Lord's directing hand. Psalm 33, look at verse 10, and we'll read down to verse 22. Psalm 33, verse 10 to 22. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen is His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where He sits Enthroned he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by his great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. You see, brothers and sisters, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. You see, the Lord is governing all things by His divine providence as He reigns above in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, our trust is to be in this one and in no other. Not in the armies of men. Not in the brute beasts of the field. But in God alone who fashions the hearts of men. Right? Who's working all things out according to His plan and purpose. And so it is He we trust in; It is He we hope in. Because what are we told? It is He who is our help and our shield. And we know that He does what for those who love Him? He works all things for our good. What a promise we have, brothers and sisters. For others do not have this promise. People fail them, and they are heartbroken. They say to themselves, I have no one that I can count on. They feel lost. They feel that like they have no one they can trust or turn to. Those who are without Christ. And isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? For if they would only repent and believe in Christ, right, they would no longer feel such a way. Right? For Christ gives hope to the hopeless. Yet, brothers and sisters, for the believer, we have one who loves us unlike any other. For children, you have parents who love you with a great amount of love. As husbands and wives, we love our, each other with a profound sense of love. Yet this love that we know on earth cannot compare to the love of God. And that love that He exercises towards His people, it is a love indescribable. And yet it is even a love that cannot grow anymore. God's love cannot go any higher. For His love is perfect love. For God is love. And yet, brothers and sisters, even though our love is imperfect, and we are always uh, failing to some degree or the other, and we can't always guarantee that we're going to be somewhere, even though we want to be, we still see in our text today love that saints are to have toward one another, don't we? Paul says to the saints in verse 17 that although He is not with them in person, He is with them in heart. And what Paul means is that although I can't physically be there with you, I'm constantly thinking about you. You are constantly in my heart. Right? He loves them and He could not forget about them or their welfare. And how does He tell them that He, that he is with them in heart? Remember earlier from chapter 1, He tells us how often He prays for them. That's how they're in his heart. That's how he keeps them in his heart. He constantly, continually, daily prays for them. right? He will say later, even in chapter 3, that he sends Timothy to disciple them in order that he might know that Satan has not deceived them. These are the ways that these saints are in his heart. He's constantly thinking about them. He's praying for them. He's sending Timothy to disciple them. They're always on his mind. Brothers and sisters, don't we know Something of what that's like. To perhaps not be somewhere physically, but to be there in heart. Over the last couple of months, haven't we experienced that with our dear brother Bill and his illness? And he hasn't been able to be here for weeks and weeks at a time. But doesn't that, didn't that stir those same type of feelings and emotions towards you? And wouldn't you say that although we were not able to see our brother face to face, that he was with us in heart? Just because he, he wasn't here doesn't mean we forgot about you, brother. We prayed weekly for him here. We would go home privately and pray for him and think about him. We would call him or text him because we love him and we wanted to encourage him and we didn't want him to be down. This is much... Of what Paul is saying here in the letter, this is his attempt to do that same thing for these saints, that they might not become depressed or, or be uh, covered with despair, because their dear brother Paul wasn't able to get to them. Right. Something else here that Paul describes for us that is so lacking in the church, today, is uh, what Paul describes later here in verse 17 is a a disinterest, brothers and sisters, of gathering with the saints. As Paul says in verse 17, that we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So not only does Paul Paul pour his heart out, saying although I'm not here with you uh, physically, I want to be with you in heart, but he's also saying, what he's showing to us is a great desire to be with the saints. Paul's saying, I'm trying eagerly, I have this great desire, I want to be with you. And it is this interest in worship that is so lacking in today's Christianity. Because if we are true saints, shouldn't it be our ardent desire to be with one another, to gather? So often, people look for the, the smallest reason, the most minuscule of reason to skip out on the Lord's day, don't they? <clears throat> oh, I have a cough today. I, I think I won't come in. Oh, I'm, I'm a little too tired today. I won't. I'll just skip this week. Ah, I stubbed my toe at work the other day. I think it might, it might, it might keep me home. Right. Right. Now, obviously, there are legitimate reasons, our brother Bill being one, in which people have to miss, right? Some sort of illness. But usually there aren't legitimate reasons why people skip, why people are skipping out, why people are disinterested in coming to worship with the saints. And we have to look, what is it that we're told in in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25? The author says this, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, it has always been the habit of some to voluntarily skip out in gathering with the saints. But this must be because of two reasons, really. Either they are spiritually immature or they are lacking faith altogether. You see, Paul understands its importance. This is why he's trying with all his might to make it to the saints. Because we'll see next week what it is that takes place as the saints gather together. As Paul will describe how he sent Timothy to go and to exhort and to establish them in the faith. Because he understands when the saints gather, we are participating in the means of grace. And so when you voluntarily skip out on the Lord's Day, you are voluntarily skipping out on the means of grace. You are voluntarily skipping out on meeting Christ here. You are voluntarily skipping out on having your own faith and assurance strengthened. So, brothers and sisters, here at CBC, we ought to make sure that we see and understand the importance of being together at church. We see the importance of gathering on the Lord's Day to meet Christ here. Yet also, gathering here on the Lord's Day to meet one another here. That we might exhort and encourage one another in the faith. That is also what this day is about. Yet what was it, though, that hindered Paul from being able to gather and worship with these saints? He says, I, I wanted to come again and again to you. But he says, Satan hindered me. Satan stopped Paul from coming. And we've seen earlier how Paul has or how Satan has hindered Paul. He did it by stirring that jealous mob to try to capture uh, try to capture paul which made him then have to flee and escape and this word satan here literally means adversary satan is our adversary and he was doing the very thing he has done from the very beginning as satan has set himself up opposite of god satan seeks his own glory and he seeks to cause uh, the saints to stumble He seeks to subvert the very will of God. And we have so many examples of this throughout all of Scripture, don't we? It was Satan in the garden who said to Eve, did did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the knowledge of good and evil? Are you sure He said that? Trying to tempt Eve to sin. Was it not Satan who tried to take everything from Job so that he might curse God? Was it not Satan we took the Lord out into the wilderness and said, you can have all of this if you just bow down and worship me. Did we, was it not Satan, uh, the messenger of Satan that we read, was the, the thorn in the side of Paul? And it is this Satan that Paul is concerned has tempted the saints in Thessalonica. This is why we read in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, For this reason, When I could no longer bear it, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You see, brothers and sisters, today it's popular to think that Satan does not exist. So many try to do away with Satan, even people who would call themselves Christians. And what happens though when we underestimate or we overlook our enemy we oftentimes if not always come out on the losing end don't we think about any any type of sporting event usually when the the team that's favored to win plays a team that is supposed to lose oftentimes what ends up happening is the team that's supposed to lose wins because the The heavily favored teams looking looking past them. They've underestimated this opponent. They show them no respect as if they don't even exist. Yet, brothers and sisters, Satan is very real. He is very real. He is not some imaginary creature. And he seeks to destroy the saints and to harm God. And so it is important that we are aware of this, that we know who our enemy is, that we know his devices and his tricks, and we know how to defend against it. Yet, brothers and sisters, also, we must be aware that we, although Satan is is tempting us to sin, we cannot use that as an excuse to sin. We cannot say, well, Satan made me do it. Satan can't make you do anything. And Scripture is clear that we are responsible for our own sin. We stand guilty before God because we have personally transgressed the law of God. Yet, as the saints, we know that as we read last week, Satan has been bound by Christ. And his ability has been limited by God. And so Satan ultimately can only do what God permits. And what a comfort that should be for you and I, isn't it? That Satan can only do what God permits and we have the promise of God that he will lose none who are his. There are none of us if we are truly Christ who will ever ultimately be given up back to sin. It will not happen. For if we are Christ, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And yet, sinners who have transgressed the law of God and who are deserving of sin, excuse me, who are deserving of death and damnation, how could this be that there is no longer condemnation? How could it be that we are uh, recipients of these great gospel promises? Well, what has the Lord done for you, I, and every believer of all time? We are told by Paul in Colossians that Christ has canceled that sin debt that stood against us with His legal demands. By what? By nailing it to the cross. Setting it aside. Right? Satan no longer has dominion over our hearts. And although he still tries to tempt us, he will never prevail. For we have God on our side. Christ has freed us. He has freed us from sin, from death, and from the tyranny of Satan. And so Paul is confident that we have just, what we have just spoken about is, is true of these saints in Thessalonica. This is why he says in verse 19 and 20, For what is our hope or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You see, we as parents... We raise our children according to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, don't we? In the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And we have confidence through the general promises that God gives us that if we do that, good will result if it's according to God's will. And Paul is no different. He sees himself as a parent and these saints as his children and he sees all that he has, he has done for them. He's, I'm coming to you. I'm sending Timothy to you. We're praying for you. We're doing all these things. And he's confident that good will result, that God will bless it. He's confident in their salvation. And he knows that their, their faithfulness is a reflection upon his ministry too, right? That's why he says, I don't want to labor in vain. Your faithfulness is a reflection to the effect of my ministry had. The effect that God had through me is He used me in order to proclaim the Word of God to you. And so Paul wants them to persevere to the end. This is his great hope that they would remain faithful until the arrival of Christ. This is why he says that they are his crown of boasting before the Lord at His coming. They are the fruit of Paul's service. And he wants to have a fruitful service. And so he glories in the fact that he sees the grace of God working in these saints' life. He's overjoyed by it. Isn't this true of parents as well? When we see God working in our children's life, doesn't that bring great joy and comfort to you? Doesn't that allow you to sleep a lot easier at night knowing that God has saved your child? Doesn't that bring you great joy and peace? Well, this is the same thing Paul's experiencing. Paul's overjoyed that he sees God working in their lives. And why does this bring him joy in terms when he talks about the Lord's return? Why does it bring him joy as he talks about the Lord's return? What do these two have in common? Well, because when Paul speaks about the Lord's return, what Paul's really speaking about is when the Lord comes as judge, to judge the world. This is why seeing these saints for Paul is such Uh, a big deal for him. This is why he's he's wanting to come to them. This is why knowing if the tempter has tempted them is such a grave concern for him. Because he knows that when the Lord returns, judgment comes. When the Lord returns, everyone will be either judged, innocent or guilty. When the Lord returns, he will come as judge or he will come as redeemer. And Paul knows that it is only for saints that He comes as Redeemer. And for the saints, they will be vindicated and they will be declared righteous in the sight of God for they have Christ mediating on their behalf. They have Christ's righteousness reckoned to their account. And this is what Paul desires so very much for these saints. Now, brothers and sisters, there are many different millennial views uh, and we'll probably end up getting to some as we we get into chapter 4. But we don't need to cover any sort of millennial view to be able to say this one fact about the return of Christ. And that fact is that the Lord only will return once more. The Lord returns only once more. I and mean, this is the account that we read in Scripture in Matthew's Gospel. And so please turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. As we read about the account of the Lord's return in what will happen? Matthew chapter 25 verse 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison to visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto, unto eternal life. You see, brothers and sisters, at the Lord's return, at the Lord's arrival, Paul understands that the sheep and the goats will be separated. The sheep to the right are the righteous. The goats are the unrighteous to the left. Right? And the sheep go to everlasting life. And the goats go to everlasting Lasting punishment. And so the question for us here today is, which are you? Which are you? Is Christ your only hope? Is Christ your present comfort and joy? Or do you live to yourself and do you follow after the footsteps of Christ's adversary, the devil? If you believe in Christ, then you have been united to Him in faith. And you have a great reward when the Lord returns that we have to look forward to. For right now, brothers and sisters, we, we look at Christ through a glass. We see Christ dimly and to some degree. But what happens when Christ returns? When He returns, we will see Him as He is. We will see Christ face to face. And is that not your heart's desire? Is your heart's desire not to be made into the image of Christ? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verse 45-49. to Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But if it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, the first man was of the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, all who have been restored to faith in Christ have been, have had that uh, renovation of the image of Christ inside of them. And if you have had that image restored and renovated, you are now Christ's. And you are continually being sanctified day by day, growing up into that image. Yet if you have rejected Christ, You bear the image of the man of dust. And it is this truth that Paul so desperately wanted to get to the saints to be assured that they are Christ's. Because this truth has eternal ramifications. This issue is the greatest issue that any one of us will ever encounter in our lives. And so we must not take the Christian life lightly. We must continually be dying to sin And living to God. We must continue to depend on Christ. We must continue to hope in Him and in Him alone. We must not allow the tempter to tempt us. And this means we must be keeping our minds in heaven. We must be keeping ourselves focused on spiritual things and be looking where Christ is, where heaven is, where our home is. Yet even now, We have a foretaste of heaven as we gather here as the saints together as we worship God and we look forward to that future glory and joy that awaits each and every one of us who believe in Him upon the Lord's return. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for the truthfulness of your word. We thank you for the promises that you have given to the saints. Father, we ask, Lord, that as we read this word and we understand our own deficiencies, that we might learn to distrust ourselves more and more as the days go by and to place full trust and confidence in you alone, for you are sovereign. It is you who have decreed all things that shall come to pass, and they will come to pass, for God cannot lie. And so, Father, we just pray that you would grant to us greater faith in you, that you would grant to us uh desire to gather together as the saints as we know that you are are working amongst, amongst us as you, as you have promised us this. Father, we pray for perseverance, that we might continue into the faith until the very end when Christ arrives. We pray, Lord, that he would be our redeemer, that his righteousness might be reckoned our own, And Lord, that we would give evidence in this life that we have been truly saved by our Lord and Savior. That we might be those who flee temptation and cling to holiness and piety all of our days. And Father, we pray all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.